How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. You hear that, Petus? The phone is dead. Even... Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. Oh, and since it's Valentine's season, it's also your stop for love. Should I have added more O's, you think, in love? Should I have been like, love? Uh, we'll try out a different, different loves. Love, love, love. Can we do, I want to do like a monster truck rally. <laughs> Welcome to Box Office Pulp. Time for love, love, love. This Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Anyways, folks. We're going to put that love in you. <laughs> um, I'm going to keep moving on from Mike's comment because that sounds awful. <laughs> Today's episode is a bop in a movie about the universal horror classic, The Black Cat, the 1934 Black Cat. If this movie doesn't say love, what does? I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I don't know, Cody. This all sounds like podcasting baloney to me. Can you believe just... Okay, when was Oscar Mayer, like, founded? <laughs> Do you think, like, they could have had, like, a crossover campaign? Bella Lugosi just hawking baloney? Oh, surprised that didn't happen, like, later in his career, like, Vincent Price in his cookbook. <laughs> oh, God. They, they fucking they bring Lugosi him back to life using the CGI. Oscar... <laughs> Bela Lugosi singing the Oscar Mayer Wiener song. If I were an Oscar Mayer Wiener. Oh, my God. Terrifying. Uh, and say hello to our other co-host, Jamie. Jamie, say hello. Am I the only one utterly taken with how comfortable Boris Karloff looks in this movie? All his, his satanic gi. So cozy. I wish I had smoking jackets like his. I could I, sleep I standing up them. in that. Right? Uh, I was really going through the commentaries like, do you, do you think he brought that himself? Like that was his personal wear or did someone at Universal decide this should be the most comfortable and suave looking Satanist? Uh, fun fact. Uh, I know I should say this for the movie, but <laughs> one of the smoking jackets that Karloff wore was auctioned off years after the movie came out. And it uh, sold for essentially the same pr price as the budget of the movie. Oh, God. <laughs> to Kirk Hammett. So, like, at the time, it was, like, you know, a, a $50 smoking jacket or something. They ended up selling it for, like, $90,000 a couple years later in auction. So, just 
Never give up your smoking jackets, folks. Hold on to those. Those retain so, value better than Lego. I will say, most believe Kirk Hammett was maybe bamboozled. Because <laughs> no one actually thinks that was the actual smoking jacket. <laughs> this is this fun fact keeps getting deeper. Now there's a whole conspiracy <laughs> behind this jacket. I love it. Behind the satanic smoking jacket, which makes it even <laughs> Uh, folks, if before we get into the movie, as always, we're going to have a drink to go along with it. If you would like to drink with us, let me give you the tips. Tonight's drink is, do you hear that, Vitus? The tongue is dead. Even the tongue is dead. It's a long title, but goddammit, it's my drink and I'm sticking to it. So for this drink, you're going to need uh, two ounces of Pergoat Pink Gin, which is a rose, raspberry, and blackberry flavored gin. Uh, I think you're actually going to want the fruit-flavored gin instead of just a regular one. If you can't find that specific gin, that, that's fine. You can you can live without it. Regular gin will do okay. But I like having those little fruit notes in there. You're going to need three-fourths of an ounce of lime juice. You're going to need a half ounce of jalapeno syrup. I'll explain in a minute how to make the syrup. Uh, you're going to need maybe like a half ounce of absinthe. You're going to use that for a glass wash. So you really don't need all that much, and it's not staying in the drink. Uh, and then this part is optional, but I would highly recommend it. Uh, you're going to need a teaspoon of cuttlefish ink. So this mostly makes the drink black, but it also adds a little bit of saltiness to the drink, which I think balances pretty well with the heat and the fruit flavors we've built up. Uh, if you don't have cuttlefish ink, that's fine. Just a little bit of black dye will do just as well. Or nothing if you don't want it to be a black drink, but that's boring. So if you want to make uh, your own jalapeno syrup, here's what I do. I actually make candied jalapenos and the syrup is a byproduct of that, so I just keep both. To do that, uh, you get four green jalapeno peppers. You're going to stem those and slice them about a quarter inch thick. You want about one cup's worth of sliced peppers. Uh, then I get a cup of sliced hot banana peppers. I just buy the pre-jarred ones, so you can just pull those out. You don't even have to cut them. Uh, you need three-fourths of a cup sugar, a quarter cup uh, cider vinegar. You're going to need a quarter cup of water two teaspoons of salt, one teaspoon of coriander seeds, and a quarter teaspoon of turmeric powder. So you're going to take all those ingredients I listed, put them in a saucepan, and bring it to a boil over medium-high heat. Uh, you're going to stir that until the sugar has all dissolved, reduce that heat to medium, and let it simmer for about three minutes or until the jalapenos have become soft. Remove it from the heat, let it cool for an hour. You can then transfer the pepper into mason jars and then fill the jars up with the jalapeno syrup. And you want to leave a little bit of headroom in the jars, at least a half inch. Uh, I take the leftover syrup and I, I just use a simple syrup and drinks. It's a little bit of kick. So that's the drink. Uh, to make the drink, now that you have the syrup and all that other good stuff together, fill a small glass with ice, just to let it chill. Dump the ice, pour in the absinthe, swirl that around to cover the entire inside of the glass, dump the absinthe, uh, then in a shaker, mix the gin, the lime, the jalapeno syrup, and the cuttlefish ink, and do a dry shake. Add ice into the shaker, shake again to cool, all down, uh, cool down all the ingredients, and then strain that into your chilled, washed glass. Garnish with candied jalapeno, and boom, you have a delicious, spicy, sweet gin drink. I think this one stands for itself. It's a black cat. It's a black drink. Spicy, like uh, perhaps your taste buds are being flayed, like... <laughs> Boris Karloff at the end of the film. Spoilers. Why is that where you went with it? You could have said spicy like Karloff, sweet like Lugosi. Instead, oh, you had see, to make it violent. Jamie, that's why we're a team. 
Together, <laughs> we come up with one good advertising pitch. Box office poop, like having your tongue's nerve endings seared. Uh, I'm honestly not joking. This is probably the favorite, my favorite drink I've ever made on the show. Mm. I'm, folks at home, I've made a lot of garbage. You know this. I know this. This is good. This is legitimately delicious. I love this. I, I, I want to make these all the time. This is going to be my signature drink from now on. Delicious. Yeah, I've seen I've seen photos of the uh, test drink uh, he made a few days ago, and it absolutely looks like something a Satanist would drink. <laughs> Particularly like a top Satanist, like a Satanist chief. <laughs> Satanist chief. I, that would look good on a business card. Hello, I'm Cody, Satanist chief. Oh, hello. I'm Rear Admiral Darkness. Mm, Goddamn. The, the only problem with this drink is it makes like less than four ounces of drink. And it's best when it's cold. Like, you don't want it to let it warm up. So, shit, you gotta, you gotta keep making these things or have, like, a bunch stored away in the fridge. Sadly, I'm recording a commentary, so I can't just get up and refresh my drink halfway through. So I'm gonna have to enjoy this small drink. <sighs> Delicious. I, for one, am glad that you don't have an endless supply of alcohol to keep making drinks with throughout the commentary. Wouldn't that be fun if just, I took a break after five minutes and you just hear, like, five glasses clinking and ice and shit, and I just, like, I'm making a martini on the side? At long last, we finally record your death from alcohol poisoning. <laughs> I got a couple more months. <laughs> All right. Well, we have the drink. I think we're ready to go. Luckily, folks at home, even though we've spent a decent amount of time vamping, this movie is 65 minutes long. You can knock this out in a lunch break if you, you know, spend a couple of extra minutes on the couch. If you try to watch it while making the drink Cody just described, it would be over by the time you were done. I mean, you've got to let the, the jalapenos cool for an hour, so that's longer than the movie already. Mm. Also, I didn't mention it. I didn't dwell on it. The candied jalapenos and candied hot peppers, delicious. Uh, they're, they're really great condiments on whatever you can think of. I like to put them on uh, top of pizzas. Ooh, ooh. Can candied jalapenos yeah. sounds like such an enticing contradiction. Mm. That's Satanism right there. Oh, 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 it's so good. Cody over here living deliciously. I am. 100% best life. Mike, do you want to do the honors of counting us down into the commentary? Yes, I shall. One, two, three. Drum roll. Old timey logo. God, is there any movie logo better than literally any universal logo? <laughs> they stick in your mind probably the most. I do have a fondness for the old like New Line Cinema logo. But that's God, probably just probably from, yeah, that's just probably from like, I don't know, Mortal Kombat viewings as a kid or something. Oh, definitely. It's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to me. Ah. So I also this, like uh, <laughs> the credits here. Suggested by the immortal Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> classic. Not, not, not at all. There's, there's yeah. no connective tissue back to the black cat. Book. I mean, <laughs> accidentally, there's some interesting themes, but they're accidental. Like, uh, like, it's interesting to me how just through, I guess, the way that death is used, like, the way death and life are used is like two sides of that, two sides of a coin, just happen to line up enough with Poe where they play with certain ideas of, um, like, regrets and guilt and all that, but it gets completely accidental. See, I figured you can go right for the necrophilia. Uh, so this footage here was from a completely different movie. It's just stock footage that they had left over. 
the shooting time for this film was something like 15 days. They really did not have time to get a bunch of extras together on a train platform. So they, they just had to lift stock footage. Is the I think only it was way 12, get actually. It was not much time. <laughs> I, I suppose love- I should go through our movie facts here. Oh, sorry, Jamie. I was going to say, I love how Universal's Poe movies were shot in roughly the same time frame as Roger Corman's Poe movies. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's about true. I guess Corman would fit in like three movies in the same time, though. He would multitask. He'd do just... one and a half movies and film the rest of the second movie later. <laughs> we'll figure it out as we go. Hey, uh, just a quick aside. If anybody wants to see like a really great, underrated, underseen uh, Black Cat adaption, that is a, that is still loose. Uh, Stuart Gordon's Masters of Horror uh, with Jeffrey Combs as ah, Poe. Yeah. Uh, in the black cat, definitely check it out. And we should mention too, uh, it's currently February of 2022 and this movie is streaming on shutter. So if for some reason you're listening to us without the movie, it should be pretty easy for you to get your hands on it. Uh, it also was put out on Blu-ray not too long ago by scream factory as part of their, uh, universal horror collection. They have something like five or six different Blu-ray sets. The first one contained the black cat. All right, let's uh, run through some of our movie facts here. film was directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. Ulmer was primarily known for his Poverty Row productions, although he did uh, some work on Metropolis and M. I think some of that's disputed if you actually worked on those or not. Uh, He claims to. He also worked in uh, Film Noir. He made Detour, which has a Criterion release. I think it's been getting a lot more attention because of that. Uh, And Sci-Fi on uh, The Man from Planet X. (laughs) Which is actually a pretty good movie, too. I think people yeah. would really enjoy it. He's made one. some cool shit. Yeah. Uh, our screenplay here is by Peter Rurick. Cast includes Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff in their first film, Together, which was a big deal. This is our Freddy vs. Jason kind of situation. Uh, Universal went on to make uh, six total movies with these guys together. A lot of times, though, it was just for poster credits. So you'd have, like, Bella in one single scene and Karloff would be a main player or both of them wouldn't really be that important. Uh, Karloff would interest- murder uh, Bella Lugosi brutally. That's a recurring <laughs> <just> theme. <laughs> they had fun. Uh, if you're interested in the other Bella Lugosi and Karloff uh, collaborations, there's The Invisible Ray, Black Friday, The Raven, The Body Snatcher, and Son of Frankenstein. Uh, most people have probably seen Son of Frankenstein. You get you get Lugosi playing Igor, and what a great role for him. Also filling out the cast, we have David Manners as Peter Allison. Uh, Manners actually wasn't a fan of his Universal Horror movies because he never expected them to become classics, which is very funny to me because he starred in The Mummy and Dracula. Which... He never saw Dracula. That still blows my mind. <laughs> he just like, whatever. enough about being in Dracula to ever see it. <laughs> Isn't that wild? You just, oh, I was in Dracula, whatever. Yeah, we talked a lot, a little bit in our Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein episode about how odd it is that Lon Chaney was just their go-to monster actor for so long. Manners had the unique position of being their their white guy, straight. Yeah, basically <laughs> their their block of wood to be the straight man in their monster movies for a period of time. Like, what what a weird niche to find yourself in. We need somebody right? who doesn't draw attention away from anything else in the movie. Can you do that for us? <laughs> I certainly can stand here and look pretty. Uh, another kind of fun piece. Okay, actually, I want to point out 
Oh man, look at the scene mm-hmm. right there. We have Lugosi panning out into the window and he catches his reflection in the smoke and mirrors. And boy, isn't that just an amazing shot for 1934? Oh yeah. This movie is very visually impressive that way. Also, real quick before we get too far away from that, I love the reversal of expectations this movie plays with like throughout the whole film, but especially in this opening where there's a proto jump scare of Bella Lugosi just just picking up some luggage that's falling. Because <laughs> Bella Lugosi moving quickly says to the audience, Look out, Stracula <laughs> It's it's almost kind of is this to talk about Lugosi since it's his first scene. This is actually probably my favorite Lugosi performance. Oh yeah, for sure. Because, Same, honestly. I mean, yeah. It's so not the shit that he got typecast in. It's actually him playing more of an anti hero type. He's like someone who's really this scene, you know, shows it off so well. He's Well, he just had that, that moment there where he darkened when he was talking about his wife. Like you can see him kind of going from remorseful to, to anger. Yeah, just there's in that this flash sadness. The there's there's this perversion bubbling beneath the service that it, it, it Karloff really gets to play with and you get to see him like break apart throughout the the course of the picture. It really shows everything Lugosi was capable of as an actor. Hollywood decided not to ever use. Yeah, more so than any other American performance, this is the role where you really can see like, oh yeah, he was a heartthrob and hungry, wasn't he? And uh, one of the commentary tracks Scream put out for this movie, they mentioned the fact that this must have been personal for Lugosi. This whole movie is is set, you know, in the aftermath of World War One. Lugosi couldn't watch all of Frankenstein because he said the ending with the, the windmill on fire reminded him too much of seeing kids basically burnt to death in World War One. Mm. So I imagine, like, getting a film where, hey, you have to get revenge on the guy who screwed you over in the worst conflict you've ever imagined. Had to, had to have emotionally played on him on some level. God, Bella Lugosi... Like went through a lot of shit before he ever reached America. I mean, a young Bela Lugosi organized the Hungarian Actors Union. Yeah. Like, that's one of the things that is a fascinating parallel between him and Karloff is they were both union men back in the day when that was dangerous business. Right, yeah. You couldn't let them know you're in the union or you would legitimately never work again. And Lugosi, like, the only reason Lugosi stopped doing movies in Hungary is because the socialist government collapsed and because of his leftist ties, he had to flee the country with his young bride he just married, who was, like, the heiress to a fortune. Which, I imagine that. Imagine you're, like, the 20-year-old rich bride of Bela Lugosi, the Brad Pitt of Hungary, and you're fleeing into the European wilderness because of a political coup. How's that the drama of that. It's very Wes Anderson, though, when I think about it. <laughs> it really is. Sorry, I want to run through my movie facts here because this film goes so quick and it, it only gets crazier from here. Um, we have music by Heinz Eric Romheld. Uh, one, I wanted to mention him because Heinz was born in Milwaukee. Go, Wisconsin! Uh, two, this is a very early movie to include almost wall-to-wall score. It's something like 80% of the movie has music. It's not just the opening and closing credits or whatever, which was remarkable. You got to think, this was the 30s. 30s. film was rapidly evolving. Uh, 
And before this, you know, it just didn't make sense to them to score an entire piece. Granted, most of the music used here is pre-existing compositions, but it's still interesting. It adds a lot to the movie to have a score. It makes it feel much more modern in my eyes. Uh, we have editing by Ray Curtis. The movie was released May 7th, 1934. This is important because the Hayes Code was enacted July 1st of 1934. So this one just barely squeaked under the code. I'm, I'm sure if this movie had been released in July, it would be like four minutes long. They would have cut out everything from the film. It would have been releasable. Uh, this movie is just one hour long. Ha ha ha. Fuck the Hayes Code. <laughs> so our budget here was $95,700. Uh, the box office is a little harder to pin down. Uh, I've seen it listed as $236,000 on Wikipedia, and they, they claim to have a citation. I wasn't able to look up the book that included the information. Uh, film historian Greg Mank has said the worldwide box office was $438,000. Either way, it, considering the budget, it was a huge hit for Universal. It was actually their biggest movie of 1934. So it's very odd to me that this film was a giant hit, the first one to put Karloff and Lugosi together. And kind of vanished culturally. It doesn't have a monster, so Universal doesn't put it in part of their revival packs whenever they release Dracula or The Mummy or any of those things. And it's a bummer because this movie is probably my favorite Universal monster movie. I mean, there's no monster monster, but come on. Karloff's a monster here. It's a satanic monster movie. But God, it's it's weird how, like, even Ulmer, the director, went on, like, he... he directed the most successful of the early Universal Monster movies and didn't get anything out of it because he fell in love with a woman who was engaged to one of the Lemleys. Speaking so of the Lemleys... he had to go away for a little while. Blackballed. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. I, I, one, I want to mention Karloff is making his appearance ah, here in silhouette Jesus, with a guy. nearly naked woman next to him, basically just covered in, <laughs> in lace. And the way he stands up and moves, it's so careful... He's doing, like, his best Charlie the Robot. I love that Karloff was already so iconic at this time that his silhouette was recognizable. <laughs> also, I love this so much. Dr. Bella Lugosi here. <laughs> to the rescue! Thank like, God the psychiatrist like... knows uh, also physical medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the old days, Mike, if you were a doctor, you had to know it all. Here, have a little cocaine. Yeah, it's not like, like no one would ever refer to any Lagosi character as an everyman, but I it's so fascinating seeing Lagosi be the approachable gentleman between him and Karloff. Like such that's a reversal from virtually any other role. Oh, this slow door open. It's the reverse of a jump scare. Like you know exactly what's gonna be behind the door, but they just let him creep you out. The atmosphere here is delicious, and the first of many great coats that Karloff gets to wear. Doesn't Karloff just look like he's about to battle Black Dynamite? <laughs> God, he looks so menacing. That giant widow's peak and the dark, gloomy eyes and the, the stiff countenance. Ah. Man, I, I adore both performances here so much. I'm going to get lost in the movie if I keep staring at him. Uh, back to the notes! <laughs> so one of the, the best parts about this movie is, to this point, Universal was pretty well known for setting their movies in 
kind of weird haunted looking castles. You know, think of the opening of Dracula. You can't get further away from that with this set. We have an ultra high tech modern. What would you call this? It's not quite Art Deco. Yeah, Mm. it's cool. I mean, parts of this were modern for decades after the movie came out. Like they have digital clocks. They've got radio systems like built into the house. There's there's brand spanking new technology littered throughout this thing. Brightly lit. Right. And it's funny because you're making a horror movie. So you'd go in all the opposite directions of this, right? Typically, you want to make it more of a fairy tale. You want it dark, gloomy, mysterious, old, and no, this is brightly lit. You can see everything that's happening. There's the wave of the modern future right in here. It's 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 nuts. It's cool because it's so sterile. It's creepy, yeah, and you don't have other movies like this. That wasn't even really done at the time. Like this, pretty much proved that you could do a traditional horror movie set in modern times. I mean, as much as Val Luton. Sh- was striving to make the anti-universal horror movies. Like, I feel like there would be no Val Luton horror movies without the Black Cat in particular. And it adds so much does to... such a nice job summing this up, the, the lines right now. Oh, yeah. Lugosi's <laughs> specifically calling out, you know, a masterpiece of modern construction built on top of atrocities. And there's definitely um, some... German nationalism rising rise of Hitler stuff going on going on with this built on the on the graves of World War One. You don't yeah. see a lot of movies really talk about the aftermath of World War One. It's very impressive few. It was considered this... gauche at the time. Right. I mean in in what? Okay, so World War One ends in nineteen eighteen, if I'm okay at history. And this doesn't come out till 34. This was a considerable amount of time afterwards where people obviously, you know, tons of survivors still around. But it was just a subject that wasn't really broached in media. As far as I'm aware, I don't watch a lot of movies where they, of the time, where they went into what they lived through in World War I. They just maybe imply, oh, he was in the war and then they move on. This movie is entirely mired in it. It's the whole movie runs off of the trauma these guys experienced in the war. Well, it's such a fascinating paradox because at this time, like, no horror fiction was about, was explicitly about World War One, but virtually all horror fiction was our culture dealing with World War One. So we're kind of like in the same way that every movie about conflict during the 70s was about Vietnam, regardless of when it was actually set. And it's really interesting as far as what the Americans in the story represent, where they more or less stumble in to this this conflict of trauma and and they kind of just fuck things up even worse. Oh, they're completely <laughs> clueless. Like yeah. Matters just literally walked into the main characters explaining what the problem is and why they hate each other. And he's like, Oh, are we getting a drink? Like he just he just did not absorb any of what was being said or the mood. He cannot read the room. It's insanely damning towards America during World War One. Man. Uh, I think that's something that also would have really played to American audiences at the time. Just this feeling that, okay, we're a very young country still trying to get our footing and establish an identity to our an identity of our own and we just keep wandering into these 
ancient blood feuds that we have like <laughs> no real knowledge of. Like just everywhere we step, there's oh, you weren't aware that these two civilizations have been at war for a thousand years? Oh, you just redrew a border. More war. I mean that was that was a deeper look than I was uh reading on this, but the thing I enjoy here, because it is a weird juxtaposition, right? Every scene with manners is essentially like a romantic comedy. He's on his honeymoon, but he can't get any time with his wife, keeps bumping into weird characters. But if you view the film from Karloff's position, this whole thing is a nightmare. You know, it's two men having a battle of the wits for fun and blood. Uh, we're introduced to the Black Cat. The original cut of the film. A uh, little bit of history. So the movie shot for 15 days. They they previewed it to Carl Limley, and he was furious. He he was shocked and appalled by the movie. He he felt it was tasteless. So he forced them to go back and reshoot for an additional four or five days uh, to change some of the things, lighten parts up. Bella Lugosi in the back half of this movie was going to go insane and lust after Joanne. Like he he just wanted her. So it was going to be. Karloff and Lugosi were both monsters. They're both the bad guys. The reshoots changed it up so Lugosi was kind of an anti-hero. Uh, he had good intentions, even if he was very extreme. Stuff like that. Uh, they also removed a bunch of scenes with black cats. There there used to be a lot more parts of cats getting murdered <laughs> um, throughout the film. There used to be a reason for this to be called the black cat. Joanne yeah. would, become a cat, would become a black cat. There was some uh, bestiality so, stuff going on. <laughs> During the carriage crash, there there's going to be a black cat licking blood off of one of the corpses, uh, and I believe Bella Lugosi was going to murder the cat there. Basically, Lugosi was going to murder a black cat in multiple scenes throughout the movie, and they cut all of those instances out except for, like, one. Uh, and there was going to be a scene later on that revealed that Karloff had a room filled with identical cats, so it wasn't supernatural like he'd been trying to trick Bella Lugosi into bleeding, but rather a parlor trick. <laughs> That's such a dick move. I love it. Right? So they, they cut all that stuff out. Um, so look at Karloff symbolically clutching this statue of a defenseless woman. Mine, right? What a beautiful shot. Ah, the focus pull. And then the busted honeymoon once again. Love! All this guy wants to do is just have a private night with his wife on their honeymoon, and of course, it will never happen. They're it just makes it all more and, perverse. Uh, they have no idea what's happening, and they kind of just want to fuck. Yeah, he just has lust on his mind. This is basically just a thin man movie where Nick and Nora get into some really deep shit. <laughs> um, oh, and I keep forgetting to mention this, so I'm going to just get it out now. Part of the reason this movie exists was because Carl Lemley Jr., who pushed forward all the universal horror movies. He was a big fan. He thought they could bring in money for the studio, which was struggling. His father, Carl Lemley, did not. He did not like horror movies. So Junior wanted this movie made to be so shocking that it would freak his dad out. Basically, it was an F you to his father, which worked. But then his dad <laughs> threw his weight around and said, okay, we're going to fucking fix this thing, which made the film better, honestly. The, the reshoots... Not just cleaned up the movie, they added weirder parts to it. Like the necrophilia hints are really strengthened and pretty much laid down because of the reshoots. So somehow in an effort to make the movie more family friendly, I don't know if that would be the right term for it, uh, they made it infinitely more fucked up. I don't, and the Sopalagosi becomes a lot of subtext, more psychological than overt. 
which is mm-hmm. actually more effective. Yeah. Yeah. I think if Lagosi just ended up being another ghoul by the end of this, it wouldn't have caught on like it would have either. It would have just seen a seemed like a retread. I think uh, the chess scene much... makes a lot more sense when it's a good and evil against each other. Although the reshoots yeah. also fixed the chess scene. The chess scene was supposed to be silent originally, and they weren't playing for any stakes. It was all implied. Yeah. So they were much more explicit in the reshoots and saying, okay, no, this is for the lives of your guests. But, but now there's a game of Karloff going, I know you're just like me. <laughs> you yeah. have the same thoughts I have. And, the, uh, and while you would have gotten that fall in the original version, it's the fact it's just just there underneath the surface for Lugosi's character instead of ever becoming he doesn't, you know, he never outright rapes Joanne or anything. It's it, it's much it just works better. Not to sure. mention, not to mention, we essentially get the ending of Bride of Frankenstein several <laughs> years earlier, <laughs> with one monster deciding that no, 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 the, the the horrors of the past should stay in the past. Let let the let the the coming new generation live without us old goblins, which is <laughs> it's just such a meta moment for a. For a mo- for a time period where the universal monsters weren't even really a thing, like it plays so much more meta than it was ever intended to be. I love that. You know, they just don't make castles like they used to. Where is all the self destructive switches in modern castles? <laughs> First part of the game here, I love this. We have Bella Gosi. Oh, would you like to switch rooms? Just there's there's this wonderful game throughout the entire thing. The movie is a chess match between these two icons of horror, and. Uh, Man, in the original version where they're both bastards, it just wouldn't work. I think you're right. You really have to have a rooting interest for one of them. So scenes like this make a lot more sense when Bella is the good guy trying to thwart the bad guy. Uh, Fun story about Bella Gosi. This was apparently his favorite film of his, uh, mostly because he thought he looked particularly handsome in it. (laughs) He attended a revival showing. This is according to relatives who was talking about the story. Uh, he went to a revival showing at the Pantages Theater, and it was when, it, when his character first appeared, he shouted loud enough for the entire theater to hear, My, what a handsome bastard I was! <laughs> <laughs> I love that story so much. <laughs> He's not wrong. He was. Uh, this is his most good looking performance. Is, this is his most handsome performance, 100%. I can He's see why he'd be like, Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. He's very Alfred Molina hot in this, where he's got that, like, mm. European, sexy old guy thing going on. Right, yeah. Kind of like the way Hannibal Lecter is always described in the books. Oh, also. yeah. As, as also the closest Bella Lugosi ever got to being Van Helsing. <laughs> which I really appreciate. True, it's, yeah. it's so entertaining seeing him be like the reasoned man of science going up against this mounting supernatural whore. <laughs> so, um, uh, another big part of this movie, Hey, there's that digital clock I was talking about. Uh, another big part of this movie behind the scenes, there's been gossip for years that Lugosi and Karloff were not friends. were angry at each other. Man, I'm going to have to interrupt myself. So this was one of the reshoots. They added this in of just the hanging bodies. Just the implied idea that he preserves corpses and who knows what he does with them. That was the thing they threw in to make the movie softer somehow. Oh, man. (laughs) 
I can't believe they refilmed this and then Limley was like, "All right, fuck it, yeah, that's better now." <laughs> that, seems, okay. that's, that seems tame. It's fine. <laughs> They're just hanging there. It's fine. Just this man walking through his hall of beautiful corpses. Just wa- we're just watching the birth of Mister Freeze here. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so uh, this body is Lucille Lund. Uh, she plays the corpse and uh, also Lugosi's daughter in this film. She had a rough time with this movie, uh, mostly because Edgar Ulmer uh, wanted to have sex with her. She refused, and he decided to make her life hell as punishment. So there's several scenes in this movie where you'll see her hung up on something or laid down on an operating table with clamps around her. What Ulmer would do was he would put her in very uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable spaces, and then he would call lunch. He would tell everyone to get off the set and take lunch and break for an hour or two. And then he would leave her behind, basically trapped in situations, like unable to move, no food, no one to help her out. And he would tell everyone to leave and he would force her just to be stuck for hours by herself. Uh, there's a scene later on in the movie where she has like a, a kind of a metal clamp over her throat. He tightened that down on her and then left her for another lunch break. And it was so bad, she actually started spitting up blood uh, before one of the other actors in the film found her. You know, broke her out of that stretcher and was, was absolutely pissed. Like, just you know, wanted to start a fight with Ulmer. She, Lucille Lund, uh, did not attend the premiere of the movie. I think she quit Hollywood shortly after this. And it's it's ugh, one of those old timey how shitty was Hollywood to women kind of stories. Uh, Lund also, I think I, I can't remember. She had a nickname, something like the Virgin Mary, because Carl Lemley was trying to hit on her as well, and she always turned him down. So. You know, everyone was just cruel towards her because, you know, she wasn't putting out. Yeah, Karloff was very affected by the abuses he saw in his early days at Universal. Because he went through a very, he saw a lot of very similar abuse on the set of The Mummy as well. And he had lifelong back and hip problems due to uh, things that went wrong on the set of Frankenstein, which is pretty much what led to him, uh, him and Cagney and a lot of other like Golden Age stars forming the Screen Actors Guild, which fascinates me. Like the Screen Actors Guild exists because James Whale was that much of a dick to Boris Karloff on the set of Frankenstein. Because that all that just came from Karloff petitioning the Academy to do something about James Whale because they were doing 12-hour shifts where occasionally Karloff was forced to like ca- like carry heavy things that could have been carried by stunt actors because Whale was pissed off at him that day. Stuff that, like again, like affected him for the rest of his life. And when the Academy could not do anything and he realized that they were mostly out to protect the interests of the studios. Like he and a bunch of actors met in secret and formed the actor union that still stands today. Like Carl, Karloff is like a friggin' superhero. Like <laughs> it is really amazing <laughs> looking at some of the stuff he was able to accomplish with just the little bit of cloud he got from being universal's golden boy for a little while. And if you want to see an example of what Jamie's talking about, if you go back and watch the original Frankenstein towards the end of the movie, I had never really even noticed this before. In the background, there's one shot where you see the monster hauling Victor Frankenstein, like his limp body over his shoulder, fireman style. He's way in the background. He could have done it with a dummy. 
No, Whale insisted, okay, we're going to have you actually carry the actor. Here's a couple hundred pounds on your back. His back, I think, was already bad at that point from years of physical labor. Haul this guy in the background all day long for shots. And it's like, I legitimately never knew he was back there until I saw it recently on a documentary about Karloff. Because you're focusing on the angry mob in the foreground. It's just nuts. Like, why would you do that to your actor? Yeah, Karloff and Karloff believed for years that was entirely because he didn't want to throw the little girl during the pond scene. And that Mm. was Whale's revenge against that. That'll teach him. My favorite detail uh, about uh, Karloff helping form the Screen Actors Guild is the SAG's first uh, treasurer was Groucho Marx. (laughs) And I like to think they gave him the funniest position just for the jokes. They knew what they were doing. So every time they were, like, meeting with MGM and shit, Groucho could peek in the doorway and say, I'm the treasurer. (laughs) Could you even trust... Oh, man. Uh, We have the return of the black cat. I want to jump into this story. This this was amazing. This is the funniest thing I heard in the commentary uh, when I was researching this film. To promote this film, they did a couple of cat-related gimmicks. One was, while they were filming it, they had Lugosi and Karloff go out and judge a local cat parade in California. The winning cat was supposed to be featured in the movie. I don't know if the cat actually was or not. But the two of them in costume were just sitting around petting black cats, and they had, like, news crews out to film it. The other, much funnier gimmick they tried was uh, one of the theaters premiering the movie said, okay, if uh, you show up to this film with an adult, because this is a scary adult movie, and a black cat, you will get him for free. <laughs> 100 children showed up with black cats and so they let in all the children with black cats and then realize oh this is a mistake we we have sorry i want to cut this off just this fucking shot it doesn't have any of the actors in it it's just their commentary closing in on the spooky ladder i love this this is great filmmaking this is so much atmosphere for the essentially the start of horror fuck it's amazing anyways it's the black cats the theater realized it's a bad idea to have a hundred black cats all roaming around the same theater. So in a panic, they cleared out like a lunchroom and they threw all 100 cats into the same room. <laughs> and, like at the end, episode. and at the end of the movie, 100 children went into the room and tried to claim their identical <laughs> black cats. And, like, apparently there was just, like, fights over it because no one could agree on whose cat was whose. They couldn't tell the cats apart. People were freaking out. And, and the cats, so they're not going to come to you. Right, yeah, you're, you're chasing cats through this room trying to be like, this one's mine. Are you sure? They're all identical. They're all black. Huh. I wish movie theaters did more stupid gimmicks like that today. I mean, oh, man, just imagine the stuff they could have done for Jackass. They go into the theater, and then there's just bulls running through the theater? Hell yeah. <laughs> they show up with a bicycle handle that's sticking out of your ass, you get in free. <laughs> Why not? Make that a thing. So we just missed Karloff. Um, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be mystical power putting his bride to sleep, or mysticism, or uh, hypnosis, or what it's supposed to be. But we, we have a, kind of a hint at the evil cult behavior that will appear at the end of the film. They really don't introduce the Satanism until fairly far along in the movie, which really uh, makes that third act really spicy. Uh, This scene was also changed in the reshoots. When they softened up Lugosi, they decided, okay, we we should have him kind of hold off 
because they're worried uh, they're going to blow the place up. And that's where they introduced the idea of the dynamite. Uh, before that, I can't remember the exact reason they had where Lugosi just didn't act right away. Maybe they didn't even explain it. But the reshoots actually made the movie make slightly more sense. It kind of explained away the weird self-destruct button inside of the house. Oh, here we go. The Rites of Lucifer. I want that book on my nightstand so badly. <laughs> With this giant text. It has to be like eight pages long. And yet Lugo- <laughs> uh, Karloff has to read it every night to remember all the pieces. <laughs> I said, just, just because... Well, that's enough Satan for one night. Because <laughs> I was just thinking, like, looking at a silhouette. I think that I'm alone in thinking Boris Karloff was absolutely a dish back in the day. <laughs> that is not a, that I, that is not a traditionally handsome man, but that was a handsome goddamn man. Oh, young There's, pictures of Karloff. Oh yeah. There's split reviews from the people in some of these movies. Um, <laughs> so the the actress we're seeing right now playing Joanne, I'm looking up her name because I did a bad job remembering it. Julie Bishop. Uh, I believe she did interviews where she talked about like Karloff was you know the, like the nicest guy in the world, and it was just a shame he didn't. <laughs> You know, all of his looks were off. <laughs> there, there were some people that thought people he was just a very so nice guy back then. Yeah. Uh, then Most again, of the comments Bishop has made about the movie were all very positive. She, she had a very good experience on the film, and she was happy to be there. Uh, a lot of people commented on the fact that Lugosi and Karloff kind of had animosity throughout their careers, but I think they were okay on this set. Uh, yeah. There the there one- were comments that Lugosi was very afraid Karloff was going to steal his lines. And Karloff took him aside and, and reassured him, no, I don't want to do that. Oh, my God, that smoking jacket's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Karloff really took him aside and reassured him, hey, no, no, I'm not here to take the roles away from you. This is this is our movie. You I know, think a lot of their animosity was mostly just – I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't there because obviously Karloff was paid a fuck ton more than Lugosi. Well, he got an actual contract. He was like a playing yeah. character at Universal. Lugosi never got that privilege. Yeah, but the studios loved to fan the flames and exaggerate it because it was good marketing. For sure. Yeah. They got uh, the yeah, two like... monsters to be villains to the public. Yeah. The the yeah. most I think Karloff ever said about it was years after Lugosi passed, he said the big mistake Lugosi made was not getting a better grasp of English. He, his His point of view was Lugosi never was strong enough to totally understand his contracts and was very suspicious about the deals he's being given all the time, which just made people like him less. I don't know. I mean, people bring up Lugosi's English during this period a lot, but it's not like at this point he was reading scripts or saying lines phonetically. He, I think he, he had a pretty good English grasp of English by now. Yeah, yeah. He, he did still but, have to have some of the dialogue in this movie change to be like a little easier for him, but he's still giving like monologues in here. It's not yeah. like Dracula, where he can only say a couple of lines. Well, and Ulmer, too, played favorites. He really liked Karloff. So Karloff and him would go off and have long, hour-long conversations and just shoot the shit together and have tea and whatnot. He didn't like Lugosi. Ulmer said Lugosi ruined the movie. Uh, he had to shoot around Lugosi's overacting and that he couldn't speak English well enough to, to portray his lines correctly. I, I call a lot of bullshit on that. Because yeah. if you look at the way the movie's filmed, it's not like he's constantly cutting around Lugosi. No. There are moments where Lugosi is still acting in Masters, you know, wide shots, doing big projected emotion. It plays great. I don't know what his problem was, what specifically he didn't like about Lugosi. But I think some of that is just projection, just saying, oh, I had to edit around him. Eh, no, maybe some shots, but 
for a majority of this picture. Yeah, Look at how long you this want. shot is. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like he's cutting every two seconds to Karloff here. Well, the problem... The tragedy of Lugosi's career is very early on. Universal and Monarch Pictures realized they could kind of treat him however the hell they wanted to, and most of the time he'd still put up with it because he was so traumatized over having to give up his lucrative career in his home country and start again in it somewhere new. And he was always so self-conscious about his language skills and his looks and how old he was already was by the time he hit Hollywood that he would just take virtually anything for very low pay. And -hmm. the studios just said, Oh, well, this dude is just our servant. He's not a star. He's just a guy who works here, and we don't have to treat him like Karloff because he's not going to make a stink out of it. Why would he? He's an immigrant. Even if you look at the credits, it's Karloff, like the respect they put on his name, big letters, and then, oh, it's Bela Lugosi, just that guy. Such a quick turnaround from when Whale didn't even want him in the credits, and he was just question mark for two movies. <laughs> Uh, as long as we're talking about Ulmer and the way he got along with actors, uh, Manners had nothing but positive things to say about Ulmer. Just he thought he was a total gentleman and a great guy to work with. So uh, maybe it came down to if you were just like a white English guy, you're you're all right. God, I hate this couple. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the only thing. The only thing the original ending has on uh, on. Uh, on this movie is I just do not buy this couple then walking away happily. Like, no, she's going home with Lugosi. Come on. Well, he gets blown up. I mean, you can't. It's over. She's got to move on. She's got to settle. I feel like even if Lugosi pulled himself out of the wreckage with 50% of his face gone, like Two-Face, she would still be going (laughs) home with him. Oh, he could use his psychiatry science to 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 heal himself. Also, this is a just I don't know what it was about movies at the time. This is such an odd interlude in the middle of the movie. I don't know what weird was comedy with intermission. Thirty thirties movies and like let's have bumbling cops show up for like five minutes and kind of just was that just their version of like a bathroom break? <laughs> I mean, it is right in the middle of the movie, right? We're uh like thirty minutes in, thirty five minutes in. So it, it's it's it is it's a split. Like if you're gonna go to the bathroom, this would be the time, I guess. Yeah, it's this it's is... just interesting how it ru- how it never. I mean, it doesn't ruin the mood, but it's the movie has this very dreamlike quality. I mean, you could. I, I've seen people call out, "Why do they crash their car if they're already going to the same place anyway?" And it's really just, at least in my opinion, I take it more as like purgatory symbolism, death symbolism. You know, they might as well die yeah. in the car crash. And even Karloff calls it out, like, okay, Victors, maybe we both just died in the war years ago. So the entire thing is just, it's supposed to be very dreamlike. It's, they might as well be dead, and they're, they're just kind of floating around, and this is, they, they aren't corporeal. And then you have these bumbling cops show up, and it's really <laughs> weird. It's weird. It's it's the trope that persisted, at least in English horror movies, into the 70s. Like, oh, we ha- we have to have the scene with the bumbling inspectors now. The only one who ever pulled it off was Whale. 
Yeah, pretty much. Because yeah. Whale was just like, yeah, I'm just going to do it as a straight comedy for a few minutes. I don't know, Bud Abbott here and Luke Costello are, are lighting the place up in their funny hats. <laughs> I like how Boris Karloff and Lugosi are both sitting there like, mm, can we get back to our, our gothic brood? It's excruciating for me to be standing up right now. Can we please finish? <laughs> One thing, too, I really love about old Karloff performances is how intimidating he was. Just seeing him stand, he kind of looms over people, even though he doesn't appear that tall. Look, at he's about the same height as Manor. He's a little shorter than Lugosi. Uh, but just kind of, he leans into people and stares, and he's kind of got his head forward, and he just, he just looks like he's waiting for a moment to beat the shit out of you. Some of his really early stuff, uh, man, like, a, I'm blanking on the movie here, uh, The Criminal Code from 1930. He has a very small role, but I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw it, just how much he's able to physically communicate, how much threatening aura he casts out, just by the way he kind of stands. It's it's an amazing bit of minimal acting. Uh, you couldn't obviously do that his whole career because of his hip problems and back problems, so a lot of time he couldn't even stand up. But these early films, he really sells like, oh shit, this looks like a guy you physically would want to stay away from. Even in this movie where he's not in makeup, it's like, oh god, that guy would beat the hell out of me if he wanted to. Yeah, that, that's why I think that very, very made-up story about James Whale finding him in the Universal Commissary rings so true. Because you could just imagine someone seeing Boris Karloff eating lunch across from them and just going up to them and saying, Sir, you are haunting. <laughs> Let me put some makeup on you and we'll film some scenes. <laughs> So, uh, I think my first experience with this movie was Futurama. Did you guys also come to the Black Cat just because of uh, the honking episode of Futurama where they <laughs> ape one of the lines like the, you know, baloney? Perhaps not. I never connected the dots on that. That is amazing. <laughs> I so pretty in, much in, that now. In the honking episode, there's there's a superstitious robot who basically says Legosi's lines about superstitious, perhaps, baloney, perhaps not. Uh, and years ago, I used to rewatch those DVDs all the time and listen to the commentaries and read up all the fun facts. And they mentioned, oh, yeah, we stole this from the Black Cat, uh, a movie I hadn't seen or even heard about at that point. And so it was on my radar. AMC showed it at one point, like three in the morning on a universal yeah. marathon. And so... I knew it was coming, so I just stayed up all night watching monster movies just to get to the Black Cat to watch it at, like, 3 a.m., which wasn't that bad because it was only an hour long. You still get to bed a reasonable hour. Uh, and I was I was just blown away. I couldn't believe, like, no one was talking about this movie, that even AMC movies would just put it at the very end of a universal slot. Like, oh, yeah, whatever. We already showed, like, five other Draculas. I guess here you go. No one yeah, this did it. not get, a, get any play, when I, at least whenever we were kids. Also, I love yeah. Karloff's uh, House on Haunted Hill dialogue there. <laughs> Ooh, even, even the, the phone, phone is dead. dead. I think most people discover, most people our age discover this movie through 100 scariest movie moments. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's probably a fair point, too. I forgot it was on there. God, just to, let's go back, though, because I want to talk about that fucking line. Karloff sells that with so much relish. Like, he's not <laughs> really overacting it, but the way he says it, oh, man. and. 
Even more impressive, Karloff has that lisp, but he never backs away from it. There, there's some of his lines where he's got like six or seven S's just scattered throughout him in a single line, and he leans into that lisp and kind of pulls the words out and makes them sinister. It's ooh, spooky good. It's it's so good. Uh, Karloff's phones are dead. <laughs> Karloff's career is just like one. One of the greatest examples of leaning into everything that's off about you. <laughs> so in the original cut of the film, uh, the motivation for this attack is different. Here you kind of assume, okay, yeah, that's it's the order of Karloff. That means they can't leave, so they're going to be captured. In the original, this guy knocks everyone out because he knows Legosi wants to rape Joanne's character. So he's doing his boss a favor, essentially. So the motivation has been completely kind of swapped here. And to, to kind of sell that, they had that insert shot of Lugosi looking a little bit kind of remorseful uh, as they, they carry her away. But it's weird. It's how much the context changes everything here. Because, <laughs> boy, that scene's even worse if it's really just, yeah, my boss just wants to fuck her. Let's knock her out and throw her in her bedroom. God, what a descent into madness this movie would have been in the original cut. I, could you believe like something like that could have been put out in the 30s? We always think, oh, the 30s, those were, those were very innocent times for films. And it's like, I don't know. They cut a lot of shit they wanted to put on film. We we just weren't exposed to this stuff because there was a moral majority kind of group reading through scripts and throwing things out that would have been considered extreme. Yeah. I mean, but stuff like this still sneaks through. Yeah. I mean, it's still crazy that Karloff was shown sleeping in bed with a woman. Who is almost nude. Like, she is wearing... Very thin clothes. Some of the corpses like you can totally see through through their uh, shirts. Right. Pre-code, man. Pre-code. I still think back to uh, when they re-released King Kong. There's a part where Kong rips off part of Ray Frey's uh, outfit and kind of sniffs the clothing. And that was removed after the yeah, haze code went into effect. Can you guys not hear me? We lose code. I can hear you, Mike. Cody, now. Even Cody is dead. Now, oh, what else is new there? <laughs> Anybody out there? I, I do like the idea of us just dropping out of this commentary one by one as Karloff gets his way. No! Damn, I was, I was looking forward to the point Cody was getting at. <laughs> now we'll never know. He's oh, wow. lost in the liquor. I can, okay, I can hear you again now. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay, we got him back. Ah, uh, man. I could, I I could hear you guys for a second, and then point. everyone went quiet. I, well, I didn't know what it was. I'm too scared. The movie cut out. All right, now you're back at Phantom of the Opera, Karloff, the perfect moment. Ba -ba -na 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 -na. technological organ. <laughs> uh, I should mention, too, uh, a lot of the score here was repurposed stuff. Which makes sense. I mean, it was still early enough where they didn't tell people, okay, compose an hour's worth of new music for us. It was just easier to say, okay, just grab an existing track and play that. Uh, but some of the pieces here, uh, most notably, they used Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet several times to, <laughs> to really push the perverse love aspect even further to make you think of the most romantic love story of all time and then put it in juxtaposition with Bela Lugosi, who is genuinely caring and Karlov, who is a necrophiliac Satanist. <laughs> it's like, it's love, but boy, is it twisted. 
That's why they play a lot of the music at different tenors, too. So it's just, it's the same music everyone's heard, but it's just slightly off. It's it's like the the music has been perverted in some way. This moment too, Legosi just goes in like flashback mode. He's not even looking at Joanne anymore. He's like staring directly at the camera as he recites his trauma. Oh, he's completely fucking off his rock. These are point. really interesting choices. Oh yeah. You could say Lugosi's overacting here. It's very theatrical performance. You know, like he's on a stage and he has to reach the back ends of the stands. I love this. I think yeah. he's he's really a solo performance. Would the movie's not, not aiming for realism. He needs no. to sell this. This is like a this well, especially is with how reserved Karloff is with his that. evil. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really nice contrast to have him very emotive. And then you have this stuff too, where like how how awkwardly he comforts this woman. Like he can't even quite do a full hug, but you can see his face is pained. I think it's phenomenal acting. I think he's putting a lot into this. Oh, Karloff is stoic in his evil. It, he's he's yes. self assured and aware of himself and accepts what he is. While Lugosi starts off very very stoic and and very collected, and he just comes apart. That's what's great about when he rips his shirt and his hair is all crazy and stuff. Like he is going to flay you alive. He's completely burst out of his skin. There's something so terrifying about crazy hair, Bella Lugosi. <laughs> also, something I think in movies we don't appreciate enough is uh, quiet crazy. Most of the time when you have a movie and a character is supposed to be insane, they they do these performances where you know they're bouncing around the halls and they're they're maniacally shouting lines or nonsense and they're they're really hyper energetic. They have to let you know this guy's bonkers. In this movie, clearly these guys are nuts, right? They're they're not rational human beings in any way. Like if Lagosi really hated Karloff that much, shouldn't he have just pulled out a gun and shot him the moment he came to his castle? Or the other way around, Karloff knows this guy's a danger to him. He could just immediately have him killed. But instead, they decide to play this lunatic game against each other and both act like they're not insane. They're both mostly reserved until the end when they come totally unfraid. Uh, I think people kind of ignore that level of crazy. They don't think of it as crazy. They just assume, oh, geez, why is that guy acting that way? It's dumb. No, they're out of their gourds. They don't need to play things by sound logic. There's also a bit of seduction kind of going on with with Karloff and Lugosi. Even when it comes to like the satanic ritual coming up soon, this is the way Karloff is pretty much just like, you know, you want to come to the ritual. You you, you want to be there. <laughs> like, you know, you know, you want to be there. Just accept it. I feel like we should have been doing a drinking game where every time you see a black cat, you actually have to take a drink. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that also plays very much into... Uh, like we said earlier, like the the purgat. Look at that fucking man, <laughs> Jesus, carved out of the very rock. It just looks like a vision <laughs> of hell right? with that background. Uh, it's but... too bad that shot. Like Tankley's a little flow. You can see the camera jumble around there as it finishes his pan. But it's like, oh, everything was too good to do anything with it. Just it's fine. Use it. Yeah, that, that all plays very much into like 
the purgatory subtext that's going on in here as both characters like become slowly more subtly unmoored after the events of the film like that, that Karloff and Lugosi very much feel like wandering souls awaiting some kind of cosmic justice that like only each other can give to themselves like Karloff in this movie like he comes across like a soul that Lugosi encounters on his first day in hell who's just saying yeah I've been in hell for a while it's awesome don't you want to enjoy <laughs> hell with me And again, that, that, I imagine that really struck a chord with people at that time. Is, like, you read, uh, writings from, like, the, the period between World War One and World War Two. Like, um, the world's reaction to World War One was, like, night and day compared to how we reacted to World War Two. There was no feeling of, like, okay, we've finally vanquished a great evil, and we've shown what we're made of. Existence after World War One felt perverse for a lot of people. A lot of people felt like we were in a post-apocalyptic state. Like, it, we didn't uh, we didn't destroy evil. The world belongs to evil now, and we're just waiting for God or the devil to pass some kind of judgment on us. So I um, I really like that with the with the style of the of the house and all that. While Olmers used a lot of German expressionism, Caligariism, if you will, um, for a lot of setup. Then you get into this basement, which is so like it's that style. It's the stilted off the different different sizes of things. Like you've entered a German expressionism like uh, <laughs> altar. I really so the the script advisors told Ulmer before he could film anything that he's supposed to avoid any form of inverted cross. Uh, there wasn't supposed to be anything that blasphemous. But I don't know, you look at that pulpit, and it's like, uh, that's pretty crossy. <laughs> uh, the cult, the satanic cult, was also supposed to avoid any signs of German nationalism, homosexualism, or perversion. Uh, so you can you can show a satanic cult, you just gotta make sure they're very straight. I just imagine Lemley Sr. coming on set and seeing Karloff with eyeliner and going, No homosexuality! <laughs> Out! The, the uh, is okay. Early. That's we can get around it. Uh, in in some territories, when they they recut this movie for release, the Satan angle became a sun cult. So your your mileage varies. What's wrong with the sun? <laughs> United Kingdom. Raw would have none of this. Also, a few scenes ago. The original scripted version, I don't know if they actually filmed this or not, Karen was supposed to go into absolute hysterics announcing that Satan had come for Joanne's sacrifice. Uh, Lemley was so upset by the transformation in the scene, having her break down and become a tool of Satan, uh, that he forced the scene to be reshot. So I get, I, according to my notes, I did actually know if the movie <laughs> filmed the scene or not. Uh, they could only push the Satanism so far because Lemley would not allow like full-on satanism to be presented in the movie i think the weirdest thing about what something's been edited is like right there the 
the Satan worshiper turns around, screams, and then faints. Clearly, there was more to that scene. <laughs> yeah. Like, was Satan supposed to actually show up? Because <laughs> we're supposed to get into supernatural stuff, and that actually freaks her out. Because the Satanists also kind of just disappear. Yeah, yeah, it would have been an interesting twist in the movie, though, because the original script set it up that you're supposed to think, oh, it's supernatural because the black cat keeps coming back to life. And then you have the twist of, oh, no, it's all a parlor trick. There's a lot of cats. That's how Karloff is tricking Lugosi. What if you had another twist on top of that? And it's like, oh, yeah, but he's actually really tight with Satan. Like he legitimately conjures a demon at the end of the film in some manner. That would have been an interesting flip-flop back and forth. Viewers probably would have been pretty confused by what was supposed to be real or not real at that point. But I think it would have been neat. Samara waiting there when it starts exploding. (laughs) This thing is, is considering how how bonkers this movie would have gotten by the third act in that original cut, I think all you could have was Satan showing up to top it all. So the first time I saw this movie, this freaked me me out. Uh, In a second where they show... You know, like the assistant, he's bleeding from the mouth later on when he comes to help Lugosi one last time. And I, I freaked out. I'm like, you could show blood in a 1930s movie? Because you think, like, even the original Dracula, only a few years before that, they never show, like, any blood. For a movie about a blood-sucking vampire, there's, I don't think, a drop of blood in that movie, is there? The Wolfman strangles people. No, not really. So this this movie felt like it was pushing boundaries. Like watching it at three in the morning or whatever on AMC, I was I was freaked out. Like, oh my god, I couldn't believe they got away with that. I didn't know movies of the thirties could do those things. You know, as a kid, you just kind of assumed the thirties. Oh, that's a pastime. They wouldn't. They didn't have violence. Somehow you forget that there were world wars and stuff these people went through. Oh, oh, poor poor Bella. Bella Lugosi getting to be the one who pulls the sheet off of a corpse. And then lament. <laughs> and then finally, this big game of wits they've been playing back and forth just ends with, all right, let's just see who can kick each other's ass. <laughs> I love that Lugosi and Karloff actually fight, fight in this movie. It's the last thing in the world you expect. <laughs> The script was actually written with that kind of close-up fighting montage included, which is interesting because a lot of times you think, oh, that's just a director's flourish. But uh, no, the writer really wanted it to look that way. Here we go. Oh, my God. There's blood on that guy's mouth. I love black and white blood. Right? It just looks like fucking it's so thick. <sighs> this is all so apocalyptic. It just becomes like the end of safe haven for a minute. <laughs> and it's. I think something you touch on a lot in Rob Zombie films where there's violence and you're supposed to actually kind of feel bad for going to a movie about violence when you see it. Yeah. Because clearly you're on Bella's side. He's the good guy. But when he starts peeling the skin off of a man as the ultimate revenge, you kind of have to pause and go, is this too much revenge? It's very last house on the left. Like, yeah. Okay. There, there, I, I think you went a little bit far there. Right. There's like righteous justice, and then you're just flaying a dude alive. Right. This is this is insane punishment. Also, man, what an impact this left on me too. The first time I watched it, I had no idea a character was going to get fucking flayed alive at the end, even if it's in shadows. Uh, the original scripted version of this was even more graphic, where Karloff was going to break free of his bonds and kind of crawl along the floor with his skin just pulled off his face uh, before dying. 
I'm pretty sure they never filmed any of that or else someone would have mentioned that Dick Smith made up, you know, Boris Karloff with half a face. <laughs> like a photo would exist somewhere. Somewhere, yeah, someone on the set probably would have talked about it. God, that look too. Karloff looks suddenly very small. You know, they've been level height yeah. most of the movie, and, and suddenly the way he's positioned here, he has to look up and you can see the fright on his face as Lugosi pushes his head back and grabs the scalpel. And then the suggestive violence here with the hand in the <laughs> shackle, just him kind of almost like he's painting poorly with that knife, the way his hand's just going up and down. Ugh. Uh, also, uh, maybe a weird tangent, but I- I'm fascinated by the reveal of Karloff's physique in this moment. <laughs> because in this movie and in so many other roles, Karloff seems so larger than life. And it's not until like, you actually see his physique here that you realize, oh, that's mostly just his frame doing the heavy lifting there. He's actually kind of a <laughs> gaunt dude. Yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty sinewy. I, I kind of like also, the accidental, like, visual storytelling there of, oh, no, he's actually not big and scary. He's kind of just a sad old man who's really good at tricking people. <laughs> of course, this whole movie that's been pretty surprising uh, has to end on kind of a moralist tone where the crazed gone too far, Lugosi has to blow himself up after being fatally shot. That said, though, there, there's a lot of kind of poetic justice happening here where the guy who can't live because he's mired in the past and all the ghosts that are involved there goes down in the place where he considers himself to have died. While also getting his final revenge. Like, he, he wipes the earth of all traces of the thing that he hates. The closest we ever get to hero Bella Lugosi. <laughs> like seriously, Bella Lugosi got to have a moment in a movie where he got to say, "You, you get the girl out of here. I'll stay behind and bring all this down on top of us." Very Samson kind of moment. Also, this is he this is nineteen thirties. This is nineteen thirty four. Doctor Octopus Machine. <laughs> this is very nineteen thirty four Jigsaw. It has been a good game. <laughs> Flip switch. <laughs> And then the Americans And then the Americans run off and probably forget all this happened 24 hours later. There was actually um, a, a weird joking version of the ending that kind of broke the fourth wall where Omer was going to pull up on a bike and, and talk about uh, <laughs> the black cat as a movie. Like he's tired because he just finished filming it. So I, I have no idea how far along they got with that or what kind of state that joke was in, how serious they were of making it. But like, how weird would that have all been if they finished with the Satan stuff? The director pops up, basically just says, fuck, this movie is hard to make. Anyways, moving on. Universal was really preoccupied with breaking the fourth wall at the beginning and ending of their movies for a while. <laughs> even, I mean, the, even the old Dark House has a, a, a fucking... A, a text prologue assuring you that yes, that is Boris Karloff from last year's Frankenstein. <laughs> also, this is how I kind of read this ending. I mean, I guess there's a couple different ways you can read it. It's both an ending joke, but I, I do think there's a little more going on. It's there. There's a bit of like these Americans have stumbled into this aftermath of, of world war one story essentially and then 
got away from it. And essentially the news they're getting from home is like, oh, the story of triple murder that's fictionalized in this book that he wrote. It's very unbelievable. It's this idea of, of America covering its eyes and ears to the actual horrors of the world. Yeah. People like us don't have these experiences. That's for Europeans. Yeah, pretty much. Man, don't you miss the days where credits were about 20 seconds long? Those are the <laughs> days. You Then you could start doing 500 it. 500 people work on the movie, long. only eight of them get mentioned. <laughs> I mean, to, to loop back around, though, let's talk about the opening credits for a second. I know we're, the movie's done, but stick with me, folks. Aren't those kind of weird? Because we actually have different pictures throughout the movie stuck at the front of the movie in, in collage. I don't oh, know I how that. common that was in that period. So that itself feels like a pretty modern touch of the movie it opens like it's uh the pilot to the black cat sitcom <laughs> they just don't make them like this anymore or probably ever there's not a lot of other things like the black cat one no, of my no. all-time favorites i i absolutely love this movie it trucks can you believe that was only 65 minutes how much they crammed in there it's there's not an ounce of fat well, except for maybe like the two guys having the argument over the better country that that yeah. I, they could probably go. But that, that serves as an intermission. You chop that out and you've got two clean 30-minute chunks you can watch. This is astounding. This is just one of those movies I'm absolutely floored by every time I watch. And I can't believe it ever existed. I can't believe it got by the censors. I can't believe it squeaked by code. And it's it's a shame that more people don't talk about it. Hopefully, now that it's on Shutter, it'll play for a couple of months before they take it down. Yeah. Maybe people will get into some of those classics and just spend the time revisiting Frankenstein, Dracula... The Black Cat. I, I would love it if people gain a little bit of a deeper appreciation for this film. Reappraise the Black Cat. It's, it's, it needs to be up there with all the others. The, the, Box the Black... Pulp recommends dead phones. <laughs> the, the Black Cat feels like lost media when you watch it. Like, it feels like a hidden movie that only recently surfaced. Like It seems like this movie should have changed the world. Well, it's astonishing, yeah, because it ended up giving us... You know, five other collaborations in Universal between Lugosi and Karloff, but they never really tried doing this setup again, where the guys are on equal terms fighting each other. The closest you get is Frankenstein, right? You know, bodies and a little bit of body snatcher. I mean, they yeah. Karloff kills Lugosi in a pretty freaky scene in that. Yeah, I mean, body snatcher is another really great one. Uh, that's probably Karloff's best performance, hands down. Yeah, that and um, um fucking uh, Isle of the Dead, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. It's just weird, though, because you think a movie like this, Universal's biggest hit of the year, would have made more of an impact. You think for the careers of these guys, you know, it should have done more for Lugosi. It should have changed the way Universal handled horror pictures. But even at this point, it kind of felt like it was the end of when uh, the Universal Monsters were treated as eight pictures. Shortly after this, I think the budgets were slashed and they were kind of thought of as B pictures and you ended up just getting endless sequels of Dracula and Frankenstein. Yeah. Or you do a monster rally film where you put as many of them together in one film as you can. Well, you would also just think modern, modern Universal, who loves just releasing the Universal monster movies kind of ad nauseum, would go like, hey, we have the first goddamn movie with Lugosi and Karloff. You know, put it out there a little bit more. I mean, we can only watch the vampire bat so many times. <laughs> But what do we know? We're not universal. Folks, if you've enjoyed this commentary, you can find more of Box Office Pulp uh, on boxofficepulp.com. 
We are on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Facebook. Look up Box Office Pulp. You'll find us eventually. We're not we're not that sneaky. We're a little sneaky. Uh, I mean, we're underseen. That doesn't mean we're trying. Uh, we're not yeah, stealthy. That's fair. No, that's fair. <laughs> just unremarkable. Uh, and if you don't want to listen to more commentaries, we have episodes where it's just us talking about films, not necessarily watching an hour-long movie that you have to watch with. So go ahead and check us out. We'd appreciate it if you left a review or a comment, a like, whatever you want to do. It appreciates, uh, it, it makes the algorithm better, something, something, tech terms. I don't know. Love us. Love us. But I think that's a wrap. We can get the hell out? Jamie, you can you can leave. We promised you could leave. Oh, I lied. As soon as you go to the door, a hulking mustachioed man <laughs> smacks you in the head with his iron fists and then drags you to a bedroom. You are now in your own black cat. I don't know who's fighting over you, but they're Satanists. They're chanting. They have an organ and weird inverted crosses. That's life, baby. Deal with it. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Honestly, I, as long as I could keep an earbud in, I would be perfectly fine just floating in a glass case for the rest of my life. <laughs> Nora me, please. I, That's what I want. I don't, I don't want to break you. I think they're dead, Jamie. Yeah, I, I'm not seeing a problem. Just imagine if that was the reshoot. They're all, all those women are alive in the tubes, and they're just <laughs> catching up on podcasts. They're all listening to This American Life on, on loop. Ooh, the new Mark Maron's out. Good thing I'm in the tube. <laughs> Best thing I ever did for myself was becoming part of the glass harem. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to use that, but I'm going to steal the <laughs> phrase, the glass harem. I like that phrase too much to not apply it to something. Get ready for some, like, really bad poetry or something. I don't know. Uh, can you call that your bong collection? <laughs> Box Office Pulp's new bong collection. Hitting stores this fall. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.